This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. It is just about 20 minutes to go until 2 o'clock here on Power Lunch on Power 98.7. We speak now about the incredibly serious topic of female genital mutilation. Now, this comprises of all procedures that involve altering or injuring the female genitalia for non-medical reasons. It's recognized internationally as a violation of human rights, the health and integrity of girls and women as well. Girls who undergo female genital mutilation face short-term complications such as severe pain, shock, excessive bleeding, even infections and difficulty in passing urine, as well as long-term consequences for their sexual and reproductive health and mental health. Although primarily concentrated in 30 countries in Africa and the Middle East, Female genital mutilation is a universal issue and is also practiced in some countries in Asia and Latin America. Female genital mutilation continues to persist amongst immigrant populations living in Western Europe, North America, Australia and even New Zealand. Over the past three decades, the prevalence of FGM has declined globally. Today, a girl is one-third less likely to undergo FGM than 30 years ago. However, sustaining these achievements in the face of humanitarian crises such as disease outbreaks, climate change, armed conflict and more could cause a rollback of the progress made towards achieving gender equality and the elimination of FGM by 2030. We're joined now by Nigerian-based journalist Osawoname Ibizugbi, who joins us to give us some insight as today is the International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation. Also, Wanna it's good for um, us to have you on the line with us. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Thank you very much. I'm going to see if we can get you on a slightly better line there as we discuss some of the background to what FGM is. Um, uh, our guest, Osawana May, is a media communications and gender activist with a proven track record in the fight against gender-based violence in Nigeria. She currently works as a project officer under the journalism program at the Center for uh, Journalism Innovation and Development. She's also participated in implementing various capacity-building projects. Over 100 journalists have benefited from this other media professionals as well, to empower survivors' voices with success stories. In 2022, she was awarded a scholarship by the Dutch Embassy to pursue a short course on media campaigns for social change and advocacy at the Radio Netherlands Training Centre, and she's a 2021 Fellow of the Female Reporters Leadership Programme of the Wolle Sonika Centre for Investigative Journalism. Her experience includes several, seven years as a parliamentary correspondent and anchor of the youth-led TV show Youths Can at independent television and radio Abuja. Also, I want to it seems uh, we have you on a better line. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Pabi. Thank you for being on the show. 
much, much better line indeed. So perhaps we start with a bit of background to what female uh, genital mutilation is, um, you know, how it works and the history of it. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, once again, thank you for the privilege of being here to um, share my expertise and experience um, writing stories and reporting on issues around gender-based violence, particular focus on female genital mutilation. Okay, I'm not a health expert. I'm not a doctor or pediatrician. But then from um, what I understand, female genital mutilation, um, which is known as female circumcision, involves the partial or total removal of the female genitalia. Um, um, it is considered, um, and it is done for cultural reasons and it is in for, and for non-medical reasons. So it's, um, it, is, it is seen as a form of um, violation against the rights of women and girls as it impairs women from using a particular part of their body because it's been removed. So female genital mutilation generally is um, female circumcision, the removal of um, parts or total um, removal of part of the female genitalia, that's the vagina. Mm. How big of an issue is this in Nigeria? Um, in Nigeria here, it is a very, very big issue. And when I say it is very, it is a very big issue. It is because I say so because it is deeply rooted in culture, and um, it is deeply rooted in culture. I believe if you go across um, um, various uh, parts of Nigeria, different states across Nigeria, the long age practice is still being um, held on to because they, um, they, the, the reasons, the cultural reasons basically that are given for um, the process of FGM is the fact that it, it, it keeps the woman or it keeps the girl child for, for, from being promiscuous, that it keeps her um, a chastity, that it keeps her from, um, like, it's, like, it's, like it saves the baby or, or when a woman is pregnant and is about to give to, and is about to put to bed, that um, if the, that part of the body is not removed, that it actually makes it difficult for the woman to put to bed. So there are a lot of factors or there are a lot of reasons that we tied to um, the act of female genital mutilation. And those factors and issues are deeply rooted in cultural beliefs. Mm. So if it is deeply rooted in cultural belief, it, it, it must be challenging as an activist to sway how society views female genital mutilation. What, what are the, the, the man on the street, the woman on the street's views on this? Okay, um, in terms of, if you want to look at it from that perspective of how an ordinary Nigerian mm. or how um, a woman on the street views FGM, like I mentioned, the fact that it's deeply rooted in culture, an ordinary woman that you see on the street already have that belief that, oh, it's a cultural thing. Oh, my grandmother did it to, to my mother. My mother did it to me. I have to do it to my daughters. So it takes a level of enlightenment, a level of awareness, a level of knowing that um, the side effects of this act are, are too far outweighs um, the reasons that, that are used to justify it. Mm. So ordinarily, the honorary woman on the street would generally just believe that it is okay for me to circumcise my daughter or it is okay for my child to go through this process. So like I said, it takes a level of awareness and enlightenment, which we as media professionals try to do mm. from our only two corners, from the stories that we write and from the advocacy campaigns that we put out there. 
So, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, the advocacy campaigns you've worked on um, and, and, and perhaps some, you know, surprising about turns from people you've interacted with over this time. Okay, thank you very much. In terms of the work that I do or the work that I've done on this area, um, I've heard stories, I've spoken to people, even some of the stories I've written before I was able to get people to speak up, before I was able to get women and girls to admit that this is an issue that they might have suffered or this is something that they might believe that I am trying to change the perception to make them see the side effects and all of it. It's still very difficult, and that is because um, the culture of silence is one that still that is still that we are still trying to fight. A lot of people are not open about these conversations. Open and honest conversations are not had about these issues. Mm-hmm. People are not being um, honest with themselves. A lot of cultures, a lot of com- different communities at different levels, they are they are still not having honest conversations around these issues. Mm. So it makes it difficult for the work that we do as media professionals to be able to like to be able to get our our messages out there or be able to cover our campaigns in ways that will be impactful. But then in the, the little that we've done, the stories that we write, the camp, advocacy campaigns that we put out there, the, the little that the little that we, even though we know we have a long way to go, it has been able the success stories that we've shared, I've been able to show or I've been able to open the eyes of many to see the need for them to abolish this act of female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. I know in my experience, the recent story that I did um, that was recognized by Wikimedia Foundation, I had to go through different means. I had to I had to convince my sources that I was going to keep them anonymous in the story before mm. they were even open to talking to me. Mm. And I had to make them really see the need for them to speak up before. So there's that gap in terms of um, um, our um, target audience or the general public being receptive of information or being receptive of the notion that female genital mutilation is a gender-based violence issue or is an issue of human rights violation that should be abolished. Mm. So there's still that gap of people not believing or, re- or really because the cultural belief that has been instilled in them is deeply rooted. So it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a while before we are able to change the narrative and co- before we are able to change the perception. Yeah. I talked in my um, opening about how you know, primarily female genital mutilation may be concentrated in around 30 countries in Africa and the Middle East. But, you know, it continues to persist amongst immigrant populations across the globe. Talk to me Mm. about why FGM is a universal issue. Hmm. Thank you very much. Um, I would say it is a universal issue because it is, tied to culture, first of all, that's one. Two, I think it is a long, because of the fact that it is a long age practice, um, and uh, most of the people who carry out this act are people who um, have already grown or who have already reached this level of, um, 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 the level where it is difficult for you to be able to convince them about a particular problem or about a particular issue. Mm. So it's because it is it is a gender-based violence issue. It is a gender equality issue. So it is a global thing because it's 
not only um, it doesn't it, it, it's not done or it doesn't affect people based on their culture or based on their race or based on um, or when they are from. So it it's cut across gender issues or gender equality issues or gender-based violence issues. So I think that is why, I believe that is why it is a global or universal issue. But then I think it is mostly predominant in a particular, um, in some particular, um, um, in some particular areas of the globe generally. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, what are government's responses? What is being done to combat FGM? I think um, governments of countries around the globe have made efforts or um, have either um, introduced and implemented policies and laws. Um, that, so I, I, I think each country has its own guide, its, its, its own guiding rules against female genital mutilation. Apart from countries also um, taking their steps on their levels, um, there, there's been global campaigns. Um, there's been campaigns by the United Nations. There's been campaigns by the African Union. Media campaigns against FGM. I mean, year in year out, we we commemorate the international um, the International Day for Zero Tolerance Against FGM. I mean, governments hold seminars, they hold conferences to talk about these issues. Um, policy drafts are brought out, are published, and all of this. So I think governments across the globe are taking steps within within um, their own countries and um, their own zones to combat female genital mutilation. Mm. But here. Um, Speaking from the reality of Nigeria mm. and as a Nigeria, um, Nigeria, I would say Nigerian really, Nigerian government generally hasn't really done a lot in terms of its fight against gender-based violence and ties to female genital mutilation. Apart from the work that NGOs, media professionals, and other organizations do, the government, I, I believe, there's the lack of willpower on the part of the government in terms of eradicating gender-based violence or female genital mutilation. So I think from my own reality as a Nigerian, I, I believe we still have a long way to go mm. in terms of bringing out strategies to combat the practice. Yeah, that's very interesting because it does need strategic intervention from the cultural point of view. I imagine, you know, in one part, our communities are very similar in that there are those that are, are very rural parts and some that are kind of more yeah. peri-urban than urban. Um, and therefore, yeah. you know, those challenges of, of communicating a message and a cultural yeah. reform uh, require a lot of work and a lot of political will. Um, is there journalistic freedom to cover such topics in Nigeria? I think that question, I'll first answer it by saying there is no freedom, there's no journalistic freedom in terms of covering any issue in mm. Nigeria because. It seems like our government um, officials, or I'm sorry to say, are allergic to criticism. So um, as long as you bring out um, reports, investigative stories, advocacy campaigns that aims to hold government accountable, she's always met with some, some stiff reactions on the part of government. Mm. So I would say no. We don't have that freedom, even though, yes, we still do it. We still report on these issues and still bring it out there. But then the freedom is not there. And so do you face, yes, do do you face any danger for the work that you do? 
Um, I wouldn't say directly that okay. I face any danger in the work that I do because um, the, the work that I do, um, I've not really, they are not basically undercover investigating mm. um, pieces. Yeah, so um, I've really not done that kind of work. And then in terms of other um, um, aspects of the work that I do, I mostly keep my sources anonymous. So mm. basically to protect them from any danger, stigmatization, or any form of harm mm. or backlash, whether from government or immediate members of their community. Mm. So, I w- so no, I do not face direct dangers yeah. when it comes yeah. to the work that I do. Another aspect of this, this is very interesting, is that uh, FGM is actively encouraged by some healthcare workers. Can you talk to me a little bit more about yes. that? Okay, thank you very much. Um, so FGM is mostly carried out by traditional birth attendants. Um, I mean, the WHO already already ha- has it outlined that health workers are not allowed to perform FGM. But sadly, if you go to um, local communities, if you go to rural communities, local villages, you see cases where... Um, health professionals whom, I'm sorry to say, might probably not even have the experience to be um, at that uh, particular position where they are to perform agent. But oftentimes, they are performed by traditional birth attendants. I see. So it's, it's in, very, in, in very rare cases that you see health, professional health workers who were professionally trained by the guidelines of the World Health Organization perform female genital mutilation. Mm. It is very rare. Mm. Mm. It's interesting that cultural aspect uh, kind of overriding the medical aspect. Uh, And I just wonder, you know, eventually the goal is for the elimination of FGM by 2030. Where does this goal come from? Um, You know, and and globally, you know, what seems to be the view uh, of countries who are permitting FGM to continue? Hmm. From my experience, I'll say generally or um i don't want to say expectedly but most globally countries who still practice um this act are going to be viewed as archaic that they are still far behind they are not following global trends or they um they do not intend to come out of that um that archaic um, space or bubble which they've been. So I believe that's how it's going to be viewed globally. Oh, I'm sure like a lot of uh, um, people from the third world countries are going to see countries like Nigeria, like Kenya, where we have lots of um, high level cases of FGM. They're going to view us as archaic and still far behind. Yeah, definitely. And then in terms of, um, to answer your question of why it is, mostly um, um, culturally, um, why it is mostly tied to culture. I, I, I think it's because of the fact that um, if you look at most communities or um, the most local communities where this act thrives, they are still culturally inclined. They've still not um, come out to urbanization or globalization mm. in the sense where it is expected or has at the level where it is expected. They are still culturally inclined. They are still tied to their cultural beliefs. They are still tied to their traditional beliefs and all of that. So it is why 
um, um, high level, high number of cases recorded on FGM emanate from such communities mm. because they still believe in their culture, in their tradition. So it is hard for you to be able to get across to them to change their mindset because they believe that you are bringing the white, man, the white man's culture, yeah. you are bringing globalization, yeah. you are making them want to forget their roots, you want them to forget their roots, you want them to forget where they come from, or you want them to leave behind their cultural beliefs or what they've already been made to believe. So it is, it is, I, 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 I want to believe it is that's the reason why it still thrives in yeah. culture. That's why it's still culturally inclined because these people still hold on to cultural beliefs It's so important the work that you do and I've spoken about some of your accolades. You were recognized by the Wikimedia Foundation's Open Knowledge Journalism Awards. I wonder what this means to you. Yes. Yeah, I I mean, I've been asked this question before. I think this is the third time I'm meant to answer that question. And what I keep saying is it's something sort of just gives me, gives me this validation and feels my desire to want to tell more stories, yeah. to want to advocate more for um, a particular community or this sense of this group of um, communities um, which involves women and girls, persons with disabilities, vulnerable groups whom I know might ordinarily might, ordinarily might not have a platform to share their stories. So it can, it feels my energy as a journalist to want to pursue more impactful stories, to want to say, oh, I see you. I'm willing to sh- help you bring your story to the limelight yeah. as long as you're open to speaking about it, as long as you're comfortable with talking about it. I know. And as a media professional, I've always been one who advocates for open and honest conversations, especially around issues ch- such as gender inclusion, gender-based violence, and violence against women and girls because I believe the reason why it's this driver is, is because of the fact that the culture of silence still persists. People are not open to speaking up. So I, it's, it, the, when, they are, when I saw, uh, the, when I got the email to say I was um, selected, it mm. just gives me validation to say, oh, wow, they're doing a great job. So that means they recognize your work, for your work to be recognized as such by such a reputable organization, that means your work is validated. Keep pushing, keep on going. And yeah. So Fantastic. It my desire to want to write and tell my impactful stories. Yeah. Well, you keep going Thank and we'll you. keep connecting with you from across the globe. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Me. Thank you. Thank Nigerian-based so journalist, uh, Osa uh, Waname Ibizugbi, talking to us on the International Day of Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation on Power Lunch. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.